Good morning. My name's Kyle. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace, and I want to extend my welcome to you as well on this Labor Day weekend. We're glad that you're here with us for worship. Uh, this morning we are finishing our summer series on the parables, um, looking at the stories that Jesus told. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 21, 33 to 46. Um, just to give you kind of the, the context of this parable, Jesus um, told this parable while he was teaching in the temple during Holy Week. Uh, he's just entered Jerusalem riding in on a donkey, declaring his kingship. He's cleansed the temple, the temple. he's healed the blind and the lame, and now he's teaching. And while he's teaching, he's being questioned by the chief priests and the elders, and they want to know by what authority is Jesus doing these things and who gave it to them. They're questioning Jesus' authority, and ultimately they reject it, and they reject him, and this leads them to putting Jesus to death on a cross four days later. So remember, these are the good people. Uh, these are the churchy people, the religious leaders of the day. These are the upright, moral, and godly, and just people in everyone's eyes, including their own. They follow God's law, and they seek to uphold it. But they, as we'll see, like all of us, struggle to be under anyone's authority. They didn't, and we don't, like to be told what to do or told how to do it. We all want to be our own authority, um, thinking we are in control of our lives. We want to do things our way, not having to listen to anyone around us, not having anyone coming in claiming they know how to do it better. And so it's in this setting that Jesus responds by telling the chief priests and the elders and those gathered around at the temple these three parables of warning that, if we're honest, make us really uncomfortable. We don't like it when Jesus talks like this. But that's all the more reason that we need to sit at his feet and listen. So please look at me. Look with me. We're going to uh, look at Matthew 21, verse 33 to 46, um, the, the center parable in this section. This is God's word given for his glory and for our good. Please hear the word of our Lord. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who put, planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them, more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these tenants? He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? The Lord has done this and it is marvelous. In our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word, for your goodness and grace to us. 
We thank you that Jesus came and taught and lived and died for us. Father, we pray that you would soften our hearts this morning, that your spirit would would enter in and make us humble before you. Father, many of us are excited about being here. Some of us can't believe that we find ourselves in a church on this rainy Sunday. Some of us used to be excited about you, but are no longer so. And so we pray that you would meet with us, that you would change us by your spirit, that you would make yourself real and present with us. We thank you for your goodness and grace, and we pray that you would teach us this morning. In Christ's name, I pray. Amen. Well, two summers ago, I uh, took Ella, my daughter, and Jude, my son, to the Houston Zoo. Ella had just turned six, and Jude was two, and we were walking around having a blast at the zoo, looking at the animals, enjoying the, the ice day that they had there. But it was the most crowded day that I've ever been to any place in the whole world. It was all of Houston descended upon the zoo that day. It was, there was no parking. People were angry and hostile. It was 1,000 degrees. It was like the worst day to be at the zoo. Um, I had both kids, had our double stroller, so that we could manage the crowds and go around. And when we got to the zoo and we saw the crowds, I sat them both in the stroller and I said to them, your only job for today is to stay in the stroller. If you want to get out of the stroller, that's fine. I need to be the one that lets you out. You need to let me know that you want to get out of the stroller and I will let you out and you can go look at the animals, you can climb on the fences, you can do whatever, but I need to be the one that lets you out. You can't just get out on your own. Yes, Daddy? Yes, Daddy. Okay. So... We get to the cheetahs, and I open the, the cover for the kids to jump out. They're oohing on at the big cats and climbing on the fence and excited about the cheetahs. And so we get done looking at the cheetahs. They climb back in the stroller. I cover the, the shade, and then we take the hard right up the hill, managing this sea of people to the orangutans. We finally fight through this people. We get to the orangutans, and I pull the cover open, and just Jude is there. Ella is nowhere to be found. And I immediately go into terror and panic mode and am like, Megan is going to kill me. Um, <laughs> uh, I was terrified, you know, and I immediately go to the worst place. Ella's, you know, lost. She's been kidnapped. So Jude and I now are like sprinting through this massive sea of people down this hill, fighting these people. We go back to the cheetahs. She's not there. So now I'm like in a movie and I look and I have two choices. I can go right or I can go left. And so if I pick one the wrong way, then she's gone forever and I am the worst dad in the whole world, um, which may already be the case. But I go right and I'm shouting, Ella, Ella, and looking at people who think I'm a crazy person. um, And I'm like, have you seen a little girl in a blue shirt? And I see a couple people point and give me eyes that indicate yes. So finally... I see Ella in the distance after I've run for what felt like two miles, um, which wasn't, but it's what it felt like. And I see Ella, and she's crying, and this sweet woman is standing there with her. Um, I did not expect this. Um, And she has her phone out. Thankfully, Ella knew my phone number. Um, She was about to call me. So I grab Ella, and I wrap her up, and I hug her and hold her. And later on that day, we talk about the importance of listening Um, not right there in that moment, but later on, 
Um, we talk about how important it is to listen to what mommy and daddy have to tell you, even if you don't understand, and what to do when you get separated. And that really does, in a crazy way, bring us to our story this morning from Jesus. Um, you see, Ella didn't trust me. Uh, she ultimately rejected my fatherly authority. And she decided, you know what? I want to get out of this stroller, and I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to go look at these animals. I know my dad asked me to stay in the stroller, but I really want to get out and do what I want to do. And thankfully, her rejection of, of me only resulted in our being separated for a brief moment. But Jesus' warning to the chief priests and the elders is much more severe this morning. When you look at verse 45, he basically says, Because you've rejected me, the cornerstone, the stun, because you've rejected the owner's authority, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to those who will produce its fruit. You won't be separated for just a brief moment. You'll find yourself on the outside of, his, of my kingdom, separated from my presence and crushed because you've rejected me, because you've refused my call on you, because you've rejected my love for you, my grace for you, all because you want to do what you want to do, because you want to be your own authority. And if we're honest this morning, that's something that we all wrestle with. Um, we all reject the idea that anyone, anything, especially God himself, has authority over us. That we need to listen to, or submit to, or give ourselves wholly over to anything other than ourselves, let alone God. We like to maintain this illusion that we are in control of our lives, that we get to decide what we want to do, what's, what's good and what's best for us. But this morning, we're going to see how Jesus actually invites us to properly respond to his authority by submitting to him, by giving him what is rightfully his, by being fruitful for him and being part of his mission with him. We're going to look at that by seeing our three points this morning, the reality of our situation, the rejection of the owner by the tenants, and the response of God to their rejection. But before we jump in, we just need to, to lay out the pieces of the parable just so that we're all on the same page. The landowner represents God. The vineyard represents Israel. The tenants are the chief priests and the rulers who are in control over Israel. And the servants are the Old Testament prophets of God, and the Son is Jesus. This parable is a vivid picture that Jesus gives us of God's care for Israel, his long and his patient pleading with his people to repent and turn towards him and live the way that he created them for and called them to. It's a picture of Israel's continual rejection of God's way, the coming of Jesus, of Jesus' death, and finally his ultimate triumph and removal of his enemies who thought they'd eliminated him. So let's jump in and, and look at our first point, the, the reality of our situation. In verse 33 and verse 34, if you look, Jesus says, Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. The vineyard is owned and operated by the landowner. By the, the, the ESV calls it the master. It's his business to do with it what he wants with it. He gets to say how it is run. He gets to say what happens at this vineyard because it's his. He built it. It's his risk. Um, the, so the profits and the deficits are all his. So when he rents the vineyard to some farmers, 
to work for him. It's not unreasonable that we find him in verse 34 sending his servants to collect his fruit when the harvest came. Now this whole scenario in first century Palestine was a very common practice in that day. And you and I, we get it. If, if you own a business, you pay your workers, uh, but the profits and the deficits are yours at the end of the day because it's your business. The owner is in charge and he gets to run his business the way that he wants. So here, the landowner of the vineyard is only requesting what is rightfully his to begin with. So immediately in the context of the story, Jesus is trying to get the chief priests and the elders, the religious leaders of Israel, to see that Israel is not theirs. They are not the owners. They are renters. They are stewards. And that's the reality of our situation as well. We are tenants. We are renters. We are stewards. The religious leaders in that day were to govern God's people according to his word and for his profit. And they're to produce fruit, Jesus says. And what, what is that fruit? Israel's job, if you go back to Genesis 12, is that they were called. They were blessed by God, not because of anything good in them, but only because of God's love and grace, so that through them, all peoples on the earth would be blessed. They were blessed to be a blessing to the world around them. They were given a land. They were given God's presence. They were made a people to be a light to the nations. But over time, they rejected God's call for them. They kept the blessings for themselves. They thought they were superior to other people because they were the ones that were so good and righteous, and they were the chosen ones. So they were so much better than those non-Jewish, Gentile sinners. So they hoarded the resources that God gave them and blessed them with. They were turning in on themselves and looking at how they could bless themselves, how they could honor and lift up themselves as opposed to how they could bless the nations, use their blessings to give away to their neighbors, to serve and to care for the broken and the needy and the sinful around them, how they could be a light and an extension of God's presence to a broken and hurting world. They'd begun to think of Israel as their vineyard. They and we need to see that the world that we live in, our vineyard that we find ourselves in, is not our own. We are not the owners. We are only tenants. Our whole life, everything we are, everything we have, is a gift given to us by the owner. And we are its stewards. And we are to use them according to God's word and according to, for his glory and for his profit. This is his vineyard. This, your life, this world, this church, your family, your work, it's his Psalm 24, 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. It's all his. Jesus made us and everything in this world, and he gets to say how we use it. He is the king over everything in our lives. Now this might be shocking or upsetting to some of you, but it's what the scripture says to us. Jesus declares his kingship over every area of our lives, over your thoughts, over your, your work, over your family, over your checkbook, over your vacation, over your school, over your sexuality, over your relationships, everything. None of it's yours. He says it's all mine, and you've been blessed to be a blessing. This isn't for you alone. One Sunday while I was in college, 
at the church I was attending uh, during the sermon, the pastor had these envelopes that he passed out to everybody in the church. And inside the envelopes were various dollar amounts. Um, some had $1, some had 5 10 20 some had 100 in them. Um, and so as a poor college student, I'm thinking, score. I'm not giving them any money, but they're going to give me some money, and I'm going to go have lunch after church and maybe go see a movie, maybe take Megan out. This is awesome. Um, the pastor went on to explain that the money was being given away so that we could use it to bless the city, so that we could use it to bless our neighbors and those around us. It wasn't for us only. It was to be given away, used for the sake of and for the benefit of those around us. It would have been wrong for me to keep that envelope and the money for myself and use it for myself. It wasn't mine to begin with. And it's the same with us, with our whole lives. Everything that we have is given to us so that we can give it away, so that we can be a blessing to others. Our lives, our stuff, our time, our money, our church, it's not our own. They belong to Jesus. So the question for us is, what are the things that we are hoarding for ourselves? What are the blessings that we hold on to and we say, Jesus, you can't touch this. I'm not willing to give this away. I'm not willing to share this. You know, how do we do this as a church? Where do we need to repent and see that we do not exist for ourselves, for our own benefit? That we as a church do not exist for our members, but we exist for those outside of our walls. What are the good things that we hang on to and we refuse to give away? The gospel this morning invites us to see that we are tenants, that we're not owners. And we're called to mirror the generosity and grace of our God and give to the point to where it hurts to give away all that we have for the benefit and the blessing of the world. A friend of mine uh, says this needs to be the refrain of our lives. He says, how can we use this for others? That that needs to continually be going through our minds. How can we use this for others? How can we use this for our neighborhood? How can we use this for our city? How can we use this for the world? How can we use this for others? So, we move to the second point. How do the tenants respond to the owner's request? Next we see the rejection of the owners uh, by the tenants. Look at verses 35 to 39 with me. The tenants seize the owner's servants. They beat one, they kill another, and they stone a third. And right here, we expect the owner to show up. If this was your business, wouldn't you show up? We expect him to come in and just drop the hammer of judgment on these tenants and get rid of them immediately. But that's not what happens. This owner is patient. He's gracious, even at great cost to himself. So he sends more servants to collect his fruit, and the tenants reject them and treat them in the same evil way. And finally, verse 37, the owner thinks, you know what, I'll send my son. At least they'll they'll respect him. But when the tenants see the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him. Let's take his inheritance. This can all be ours. So they take the son, they throw him out of the vineyard, and they kill him. Jesus is basically painting the story of Old Testament Israel here for the people leading up to John the Baptist and leading up to himself. God sends his leaders, he sends his prophets to call Israel back to repentance over and over again in the Old Testament. Come, return to me, 
Be who I've made you to be. God is saying, come home. Be who I've called and created you to be. So the servants are coming to remind the tenants, to remind the leaders of Israel, you are not following God according to his word and living for his profit. You are working for your own self, for for your own tradition, for your own good. So God repeatedly sends his servants to destroy their and our illusion of control and independence and self-sufficiency to remind us we are not owners. We are tenants. And then the tenants reject them. They beat the servants. They kill them. They kill the son. Because when their idea and their illusion of control and authority over their own lives is threatened, they become hostile and murderous. So what happens when the illusion of control is threatened or shattered in your life? How do you respond? Does the fact that you aren't in control of your own life make you angry? If so, that really reveals that we are tenants living as owners. You know, how do we respond to the servants in our lives that come and they disrupt our control, whether they're our parents or a spouse or a friend, or a work acquaintance, or a boss, or one of our children, or the church, or the Bible? Do we look at those who aren't perfect and we zero in on their faults, and we zero in on our own hurt, and so we can just disregard everything that they say that's true? Do we get defensive and angry when our authority, our illusion of control is threatened? Or do we respond with grace? with humility, repenting over our brokenness and our sin, eager to repair and reconcile and repent and be humble. The natural condition of all of our hearts is that we all reject God's ownership, his kingship, his rule. Romans 8, 7 says, The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. We're hostile to him, and we need to see that that sin isn't just a violation of the rules. It's much, much more than that. As one preacher puts it, he says, it's a whole attitude of resentment toward the crown claims of Christ. So apart from God transforming our hearts, softening us by his word and his spirit, the natural conditions of our hearts are to be hostile, to live as tenants, pretending to be owners, rejecting God's rule and authority over us. So the question, again, is where are we doing this? Where are we rejecting God's rule and authority in our lives? Where do we seize control and fight against and argue with his servants, with his messengers that he sends that are trying to help us see the reality of our situations and inviting us to repent and invite us to humility? One way we do this is by being really, really religious and really good. You know, you've heard heard us quote Flannery O'Connor before when she says, the way to avoid Jesus is to avoid sin. Because, you see, if, if you're sure you're good, then you don't need to admit that you're broken and that you're not in control. So you can be self-righteous. You can look down on those sinners who aren't as good and perfect and put together as you. And when someone comes to challenge that, you get angry and defensive and hostile. So, so where are we smug instead of warm? Where do we look down on those around us because we're superior to them according to some metric that we've decided is important? You know, where are we self-righteous instead of humble? How are you listening to God's messengers this morning? That brings us to our last point, the response of God to the tenant's rejection. 
In verse 40, Jesus asks, what will the owner do to these tenants? And the chief priests and the elders are chomping at the bit. They're so caught up in this story that they shout out in verse 41 these self-condemning words. He will bring those wretches to a wretched end. And he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. They're so excited because it's up until this point in the story, the leaders, they knew that the vineyard was Israel, but they hadn't seen that they themselves were the tenants. They thought the tenants were Rome. And they love Jesus' story. This was a story of revolution and hope. God's going to get rid of these filthy Gentile occupiers. But, what is, but Jesus does what he always does. He shows them the upside-down nature of his kingdom and his gospel, and he twists the story. He quotes from Psalm 118 and Daniel 2, and he says, The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done, done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. And if you look back at verse 31 and and the, the sermon that David preached last week, he has told them who the people that are inheriting the kingdom are. In verse 31, it's the tax collectors and the prostitutes. Last week we saw it's the tax collectors and the sinners. It's those who are on the outside, who don't belong, who are completely unwelcomed by them. And then Jesus continues, anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. Jesus is saying here, if you reject me, you are rejecting God himself because he sent me. Jesus knows that in four days, the religious leaders are going to ultimately reject him and fulfill the prophecy of this parable and lead Jesus out of Jerusalem to his death on the cross. But Jesus is saying that It's through your rejection of me that I'm going to win. Jesus becomes the cornerstone, the stone that the church, that all of life is built on through his death and rejection. Jesus wins through death. Through his death, he sets up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, that will endure forever and destroy all other kingdoms. Those who reject him and have killed him think that they've won by putting him to death But they don't see Jesus for who he really is. They don't really see him as the God-man, as God himself who came, not as we read earlier, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The one who came to call his people to himself. The one who who came to usher in his kingdom through death, through reversal, calling all to repentance, to give up their authority, to give up clinging to their illusion of control and come to him and give him what is rightfully his. Jesus is saying that his kingdom that is going to right every wrong, that's going to get rid of sin and death and sickness finally and completely, that is going to be holy and just, that's going to bind up the brokenhearted, it's coming, and there's nothing you can do to stop it. And Jesus demonstrates God's grace and patience here and the repeated attempts to draw the people back to himself. But his warning here is severe. He says, if you're going to continue to reject me, the kingdom will be taken from you, and it will be given to those who will produce its fruit, to those who know that they're broken and needy, to those who know that they don't have it all together, to those who know and confess and repent that they are sinners, that they are outsiders, that they are enemies of God. Paul says in Romans 5, 8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And he goes on in verse 10, for if while we were enemies, 
we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Christians are those who know that they're God's enemies, who know that they rebel against God, and who continually repent of it. When we come to Jesus in humility and in honesty, confessing that we are tenants pretending to be owners, that we've rejected his authority, and that we are the ones that actually have killed him, we're rescued. We're brought in. But in all honesty, there's still a remnant of that enemy that won't be fully put to death until, as First John says, we see Jesus face to face and we become like him. A Christian is someone who continually needs the Spirit, needs the Word, needs God's messengers and servants to help them repent and break the ice of rejection that continually forms around our hearts. But it's through Jesus' death, caused by our rebellion and rejection, that God destroys the rebellion and the rejection in us. He uses the rejection of Jesus to remove our rejection of him and make it possible for us to be his. Make it possible for us to join him on his mission of blessing the world. Jesus is saying some really sharp and harsh words here this morning for us. But he's saying, my upside-down kingdom is coming, and it's advancing, and nothing is going to stop it. And this kingdom is defined by the gospel. It's defined by the reversal of the weak and the strong. It comes through death. And it's good news that you respond to with faith and repentance. You don't do anything to earn it. You don't do anything to merit entry into this kingdom because Jesus has done it for you. So he asks us this morning to honestly wrestle with and assess where we stand in regards to him. And he warns us, you can continue to reject me and my authority and my gospel and you will be crushed by this stone or you can come to me. You can humbly give yourself to me wholly, and you can build your life on this stone. There's no in-between. But know this this morning. This Jesus was willing to die for you. He was willing to become an enemy of God so that you, his declared enemy, could finally become his family and his friend. So how do you respond to the owner of the vineyard this morning? Do you reject his authority with hostility and defensiveness and control? Or do you humbly submit yourself to him, admitting your hostility and accepting his sacrifice and his embrace? Come to him this morning. Give up your authority to the one who died for you, for the one who doesn't use it against you, to the one who doesn't shame you, but the one that loves you. And join him on his mission of advancing his kingdom through his love and through using your blessings to bless this world. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We confess that Jesus' words make us uncomfortable and we don't like when he talks like this. We pray that you would soften our hearts, that you would help us to deal with you honestly, that we would come before you in humility holding on to nothing but coming to grab hold of you because you are the one that promises life, you are the one that promises forgiveness, and you fulfill your promises. So help us to come and meet with you this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We come now to our time of communion, uh, needing our